You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to TFM's local books and comic show coming at you from a, a very different station today. Uh, it, it feels very it, it feels new and like very vibrant. And I, I think we're going to still just call it literary tracks, but it's it's very new uh, and very clean. I mean, somebody even cleaned up well the new green room like Dayton's junk isn't all over the floor, which is great, isn't it, Bruce? It is. I mean, the the fact that we got one of those little, you know, automatic vacuum cleaner things that go around oh, the little yes, rover things yes. that has mm-hmm. helped. It's a I Roomba. Mean, yeah, it the Roomba made all the difference. I, I, it's yeah, like a, yeah. when I think I've now called Dayton Dayton Roomba Ward because <laughs> it cleans up his mess. Oh man! Oh, we're we're excited to be here, and of course, uh, we're really excited that uh, back with us, uh, Casey Pettit. Hey, how's it going, Casey? Hello, it is good. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited to be here, and I gotta say, this place is much nicer than that rundown uh, facility that you used for a while uh, that you had to fix up just to then move right into the to the new literary trek. So, I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, we're glad that you, we can, you know, welcome you into the new place and that you can enjoy that um, as we, uh, you know, dive into a Star Trek book. Of course, this week we're going to be talking about Raise the Dawn, which, Bruce, isn't it kind of crazy that we only have one more book in the series? Like, like we'll have covered everything major event-wise in the 24th century with the next book we have, which is the last one we haven't actually reviewed specifically, which is Brinkmanship. Other than that, we've either interviewed the author or talked about them all in reviews. That's insane. It is. And I looked up just the other day. I was like, how many books do we have left? Because I know we're getting to the end. And you're right. It's just that one that's left. But it makes yeah. me want to continue reading the books that follow, even though they've already been covered here on the show. And even though I've read them before, now I'm like wanting to reread those and get into the fall and all that all over again. But I don't know when I'll have yeah. time to do all that. <laughs> no, I hear you. I, I just don't have lots of time for like super extra reading like that. But I, I, I was like, maybe I should I'll just go back and listen to those episodes. Uh, that That's probably a good idea. But uh, before we dive into talking about the book, um, there's uh, just a couple things we want to mention. First, thanks so much for listening to Literary Treks. We really appreciate it. And of course, you can find us all over social media under Trek FM uh, on Instagram or on Twitter. Of course, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can join Casey and Bruce and I in the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group, and talk to listeners from all over the world. 
And of course, uh, if you like the network and you do want to make sure that those things keep coming to you each and every week, all these podcasts that we do and all the content, go to patreon.com slash trackfm and see how you could be part of our team. In fact, you could even be an associate producer like Casey Pettit. Um, we really appreciate him supporting the network and of course, Literary Treks as long along with Greg Rosier. And so, again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. And, you know, don't forget, if you really do like literary treks specifically and you want to help this show grow even more, go give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the show continue to grow and help me more people find us. So, um, well, guys, I, we're here in the sense that, like, there's only one thing in the news, which is the fact that the final book in the Coda series has been released today, and, well, Oblivion's Gate is out now, and um, have either of you guys read it already? I mean, it just came out today, so, you know, I mean, I don't know if, like, you guys just stayed home and, like, poured through it to see what happened, you know, what, I don't, Casey, is, is that what you did? Yeah, 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 I'm I'm Quentin Tarantinoing these books. I'm gonna I'm gonna read them in backwards order, or you know whatever Star Wars order you want to <laughs> read them in. Um, since I haven't read the first two yet, but no, I, I I have all three. I have the copy of all three of them, but I I am I'm waiting for a good time to really sit down and and plow through all of them together. I have I've okay, not avoided I thought any you were spoilers, waiting for Guffman, and I, I was like, wow, I don't know when <laughs> yeah. he's going to show up. So you might no. as well just go ahead and start reading. Exactly. No, but yeah, I'm I'm excited for it. I've I've been listening to all the the podcasts and the interviews with the authors and everything. So looking forward to it and looking forward to hearing you talk. I'm assuming you're going to talk with David at some point. Yeah, in fact, uh, we'll be uh, uh talking to him next week. So very excited about that. And uh, you know, Bruce, have have you read Coda yet? Have you read the third book? Why, yes, I have. I got an advanced nice. copy of it, and I read it. I devoured it. I thought about it. I got mad, then I got happy, then I got confused, then mad and happy again and sad. All the emotions. And right now I'm happy. I'm pleased. Nice. Yeah, I um, I did the same. I, I got the re- the advanced copy and, and I actually read through it pretty quickly. Um, not something I generally do because I'm usually waiting until uh, I'm closer to the interview, but I took like lots of notes. So I'd remember everything I wanted to while I was reading it. But I read it probably in two days. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm not going to give it in away any of my thoughts on the book at all, um, until after we, uh, do the interview with Dayton. In fact, you know, Bruce, it might be really interesting just to have us do our own thoughts on that series just without the authors, just so we could talk through everything as a podcast. So, I think we've just decided to do another podcast. So Yeah, when you were saying you'd share your thoughts yeah. later, I was like, actually, yeah, after you interview David, we should do that. I was thinking mm-hmm. the same thing. Yeah. I think it would be a great idea, mainly just because, you know, from the fan perspective, you know, I love that we get to talk to the authors, but just kind of as a fan, I mean, we've been in this so long, I think that would be really cool. So, Casey, that means you have reading to do over the Christmas break, <laughs> um, and uh, then you can join us and talk about that. But so that there we go we've given everybody something to look forward to but um i don't know guys uh you know that's really all we've got in the news today which is pretty big news item but how about we uh i don't know raise the dawn let's raise it okay so we 
it's a very big book. Like a lot has happened in in these two books that David R. George III has given us. Um, you know, Plagues of Night sets it all up, and now we're dealing basically with the aftermath of everything. Ooh, the aftermath. I want. Ooh, that would make a good book series title. Oh, hmm, I wonder if that's taken. Anyway, um, uh, so we are dealing with that here, and. So we're we're going to be going straight into spoilers. So if you've never read this book, then, I mean, fair game. You know, it's been out for like, what, 10 years or something like that, it seems like these days. It's been a long time. Anyway, so Emissary No More. Uh, we're closing out the Cisco saga that started in Rough Beasts of Empire. And so, and, and we've been covering this extensively as we've been walking through the series because each of us in our own way has had some kind of reservations about it. So now that we reach the end and we strip Cisco of the title of Emissary by the end of this book, uh, I, how do you feel about basically the resolution of everything that started all the way back in Rough Piece of Empire? I I was not happy personally how things kind of started in Rough Piece of Empire. Um, I remember that just feeling like that book was fairly disjointed, which actually kind of made me a little nervous about getting into Plagues of Night and then Raise the Dawn. Once I read Plagues of Night, though, and saw how the Cisco saga continued, I appreciated it more. And I know you guys talked about that on the last, uh, on, on the episode about Plagues of Night. But once we got into this one and really started to see some closure and really, you know, seeing Cisco and Cassidy coming back together and, um, and how that went, I appreciated this story a lot more kind of in hindsight. Like it almost makes me want to go back and read those parts of Rough Piece of Empire again, just to see kind of how this started and, and how it led to where it, where it eventually got. And I, I was actually fairly satisfied, um, with his story and the ending of his saga, you know, the explanation of why he wasn't being contacted by the prophets anymore. And, um, yeah, just felt, uh, felt pretty good about where, where this all landed. Felt like he has a good place to go from here. Yeah. I, you know, I feel like Joan Rivers right now. Cause I just want to say, can we talk? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I did, I was satisfied with the ending. I was liking how it was going. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, Cisco has basically had written himself off as he was no longer the emissary, and now it's just like official. So, I mean, I was like, okay, well, we're all going, we're already going down that path. But this whole thing of the sorrow has gone away. I'm really confused about because it's. It was is presented as if like, well, yeah, if you got back with Cassidy, you experienced sorrow. And so you did. So now it's over. So you're fine to be with Cassidy again. Did I perceive that right? I mean, can we talk? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I, I, I No, I so I thought that it seemed to me to be some serious mumbo jumbo like, so, you know, we. We got real metaphysical and philosophical and spiritual in this, and and, and but I don't think in necessarily the best way. You know, the whole idea that like Cisco, you know, time is a river that you step in, and you know, and and so by doing this thing, he had changed the river, and then you know, it's like it felt like semantics, verbal semantics, more than anything else, and. 
you know, as we talked about last time, Bruce, I think the uh, there are better story options for the idea of the sorrow, as well as here, I just, I think the thing that, bo- one of the things that bothers me the most is that with Cisco, we just kind of strip him of the things that made him special as a character, which is that he had this connection with the prophets. We find out that he's basically prophet himself, or at least half prophet. Um, You know, that all of a sudden they would be like, oh no, you've done your duty and we don't need you anymore. But then we're going to create the hand of the prophets in Kira, and it's just like, you know, it would be, it seems much more logical to me story-wise that Cisco would be the one who would continue to have the role that he's already had spiritually for the Bajoran people and through, through the prophets, but just have it go into a new phase. And that's why, and that would be one of the reasons that he had been whisked away to the celestial temple in the first place. Cause it's something that David never deals with in his books as to why Cisco was gone in the first place. Why does Cisco go to celestial temple? If it has absolutely no impact on the story going forward ever, and I'm just, I think for me, it's its something I'm really passionate about and frustrated. Like, obviously, this character is one who means a lot to me and that I love. And so to get him to this point, I felt like it was a real detriment to the character to just basically take away the very thing that had set Cisco apart from all the other captains that we had had before. It's one of the big things that sets him apart, and it's one of the things that just made him very interesting as a character, having to deal with, basically, especially by the end, you when you find out who you are, it doesn't really ever seem to have a, a major impact on his life other than him coming to this, like, very strange, oh, I've caused all this sorrow, and yeah, it just... it. It resolves itself here so we can move forward, but the, I feel like more that this is a, a a place where David wanted Cisco to not be or have anything to do with the prophets in this way anymore. And so the goal was more to get Cisco to that place than actually allowing it to be something that felt more realistic to the actual character's arc from Deep Space Nine onwards. I don't know if any of that makes any sense to either of you guys or what you think, but I've talked a lot, so go. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I liked, I, I mean, I can, I could definitely understand that. I, I did think it was pretty uh, quick, I guess, how they just said, okay, yeah, like the, the whole thing with the river and, oh, because you already did one thing, that changed things, and now there's not going to be sorrow, so you guys can be together. That That was a little bit quick, but... I mean, some of the stuff leading up to it back in the 1960s um, kind of era with Benny and Cassie and uh, whatever Kira's name was, Kay, I think. Um, I mean, I liked that a lot of that those conversations took place in that uh, time period so that at least there was some sort of, I guess, connection back to the series and, and his time with the Prophets and this interpretation of being with the Prophets. Um, yeah, I, I do. Uh, I'll... I'll uh, i'll get i'll cave i guess and say yeah it was it was a bit of a cop-out i think to just kind of be like oh yeah uh the sorrow thing yeah we're we're done with that now you can you can move on and i i still don't mind completely because he is still half profit like i don't mind him not being the emissary anymore i would 
I would just, I guess I still wish that the prophets would still like mm-hmm. commune with him or whatever. Yeah. Like you said, like kind of explain some of what was going on or even if, even if some of his memories came back from that. Cause he even says like, I don't really remember anything about my time with the prophets. And yeah, you know, like you thank said, you. what, like, what was the what? point then? Like, how long were you gone? I don't know. Time is meaningless. <laughs> It seems so much less a river of dreams and more of a ri- a river of convenience. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, um and that's that's really frustrating because I feel like it I'm going to use an example and people may hate it, but it seems very much familiar to me in the sense of the way that some directors have dealt with us another franchise. And that they didn't necessarily like the direction that one director was going. So they just basically shut the door on that. And and that's kind of what I'm getting here. It's like, it feels like there's a, there's a direction that David doesn't want to have to walk down anymore. And he, so he just, he's shutting the door on that. So we don't have to worry about writing, you know, Cisco and the profits. We don't have to worry about coming up with anything in that direction anymore. Um, we'll give that direction to Kira now. And, I I mean, I guess it bothers me because that still seems like that should be a role that Cisco has. Um, yeah, but I mean, in defense of what David wrote here, I can understand and you're sitting there and you're like, okay, we're in this novel verse. We're beyond the TV series. Where are we going to take things? And instead of it just being a continuous DS9 emissary you know on and on and on for years we're getting a new space station and you know it's let's move forward with cisco and he's not the emissary anymore let's like switch it all up and and cures the hand of the prop i can see where it's like okay we're 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 mixing it up we're we're beyond that those stories have been told let's do something different so i get that mm-hmm. and i don't i really enjoyed every all the other, all the things in this book, except there that ending. Well, it's not that I didn't like the ending part, but I did feel it was a bit weak. Like like Casey, you were saying, mm-hmm. a little bit rushed, or or it just seemed like just really safe to. Okay, we're just going to get Cisco back together with Cassidy and the sorrow things over and all that other stuff, and we're good to go. And that was mm-hmm. the only that was my only, I guess, complaint about the book. Yeah, they could have almost like just like said something like that like the prophets if they came in and they were like oh well the sorrow that you were gonna know was this other thing that happened or you know like just even tie it into something else that's happened in his life and just be like and you know because time is meaningless mm-hmm. to us we thought that Ooh. that was gonna last forever you know and so like we but now that that's passed yeah. you know and we understand what the past is because of your time with us or something right. mm-hmm yeah I, you could have done something timey wimey like that, where like it was Jennifer's death or something. I, you know, you could have even gone in that direction. So I, well, what happened I with Vaughn? Like, I, I know we're going to talk about this later, but yeah. what happened with Vaughn at the end? It would have been cool if that was Cisco in some ways. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, gosh, I'm there. There's so many possibilities here, and and so where we do end up with Cisco, though, I think another frustration that I have, um, and you know, I've talked quite a bit about with Cisco that I think the perfect opportunity is here to 
you know, they're building the new Deep Space Nine. Bruce, like you mentioned, you know, our last show, the idea of like having, you know, two stations or anything. But I think the perfect opportunity to kind of use this as a, a way to organically bring back a lot of the characters of Deep Space Nine to Deep Space Nine. So it feels more like the series again. Make him an admiral and make his station Deep Space Nine. I mean, we've already sent him on missions around this area in this book because he knows this area of of space best and he has great relationships with everyone, you know. And so why would he not be the admiral of this sector of space? And, you know, you could have, you know, the Defiant, the Robinson or whatever, basically, you know, be his ship or whatnot um, or something like that. I. I just don't understand. He's already been offered the Admiralty once in this these two books, and he turned it down. But this seems like a perfect place for them to say, hey, we're building a new Deep Space Nine, and what we really want is for you to be here. And that way, you know, the family gets to stay together. Um, they still can keep the house on Bajor, uh, you know, and... Um, you know, Cisco, even if they want even if they want to do that, you could commute to work every day. You know, I just like um, I, it, it, I mean, and they even have the temporary base that they built on, you know, um, the the planet. So I, it just feel like there's so many opportunities here to kind of like put this crew back together a little bit more so that the book series moving forward would feel more like the series in the way that the TNG books have. Um, and they just missed that opportunity here. And, and, and in all honesty, Deep Space Nine will never feel like Deep Space Nine again. Well, that's the thing. Uh, and, future books, even with these books, to me, it could say DS9 on the cover. But when I would yeah. read these, I never thought of it as really being mm-hmm. Deep Space Nine. It was just a story taking place in the Star Trek universe. And one book so happens to take place on the news station. Another book takes right. place on the Robinson. The, another book, what was it? There was something like, uh, well, like, you know, with Garrick, you know, it's taking place on Cardassia. Like, it's, they yep. all kind of been yep. separated out. I mean, in some ways, this solves the criticism that I've often felt about the original series when it went to movies and the same crews together for practically 30 years. It's like, sure. haven't they moved on and here they've moved on, but we're not given what we want, which is them all together. Right. You know? So right. it's like, well, and, which way do you go? And this allows them to come back together and yeah. be there for more legitimate reasons. You know, like, uh, you know, it, it, it and and not everybody would be back together, you know. Uh, you know, this could be something where, you know, again, O'Brien may be there for a while. He might not be there for, you know, the rest of his life, kind of thing. But it just feels like, at least with the character of of Benjamin Cisco, having him there, making him an admiral, you still get to keep Roe. And, and and you get to have more of these connections with these characters and it make more sense. And there's still plenty of storytelling opportunities, I think, you know. Um, at, I mean, so anyway, I don't know. I, I've gone on long enough. Yeah, I think, too, that just, you know, yeah, bringing those characters back. I mean, one of the big things about Deep Space Nine that I think a lot of us like is the character development that we get and the character stories. But it's it's not just the individual characters like 
you know, breaking them up, you know, having Cisco mm-hmm. on his own ship with nobody else there or, you know, mm-hmm. even Bashir going off into Section 31 or, you know, O'Brien or where, wherever he is, you know, on any given day. It, it's the interactions with the two of them. I mean, in, in this book, I really enjoyed kind of the reunion of Bashir and O'Brien. Yes. You know, like that, that was really cool to see. It was a very short scene. It really did nothing for the story, but it was really fun to see that. And I think, you know, seeing seeing more of those interactions and and having all these new characters in too would be great. But yeah, like having having Cisco kind of at the top there. But yeah, like I guess kind of the way these stories have been going, yeah, it does it does feel a little bit like he or you know whoever the authors that are writing Deep Space Nine are not really sure what to do with Cisco. And like you said, Matthew, like it's it's kind of like they just wanted to get rid of uh, what was being done before and let's go somewhere else completely. Yeah, and I mean, in in the end, it's the hardest part of, like, bringing him back in the first place, you know, and I do think it's one of those things to which, you know, the the original relaunch series led up to Unity, and then after that, it did feel like they just didn't necessarily have a great plan for, like, okay, so we bring him back, like, what's the repercussions of that, and how does that look, and what does it look like, and all that kind of stuff, so... You know, it's it's all in hindsight now since uh, Coda Three has just come out. And anyway, um, it was all. A I dream. wanted to ask. Yeah, it was all. <laughs> yeah, life is but a dream. Um, we have the the big part of the story here, which we find out what the Typhon Pact plan was with uh, the uh, stealing of the components from the Dominion, and it's not just about the slipstream; it's about them. Working with the way, uh, the and way. the true way, uh, and creating an artificial wormhole that links with the Bajoran wormhole, um, and so that they can get back and forth from you know the the Gamma Quadrant without having to go near Deep Space Nine, and I this this I. I actually forgot about this part of the story and I found this just such a fascinating idea of, you know, that creating artificial wormholes and how it's been so difficult, and, but they found this way to do it. And I, I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on this because to me, this was a really cool part of the story. Oh, so you thought it was cool. Okay. See, I never know sometimes what you're going to say because I thought it was yeah, cool too. No, I, I, <laughs> I thought that this was a really fascinating part of the story. Yeah. No, I, I'm like you. I forgot about it until they started talking about it. I was like, oh, wait, I'm remembering this now. And I remember thinking this is pretty cool. I, I Yeah. I mean, what you just said, I thought it was great. I love the idea that it's an artificial wormhole that isn't just created that mirrors the Bajoran wormhole and it can do the same thing, right? We don't want it to be able to do the same thing. Like they shouldn't have the technology to do what these prophets these wormhole aliens were able to do but they're able to do something temporarily something that kind of works but you have to link it to the wormhole the existing wormhole and for it to work correctly all that stuff and creating you know this red swirl in there and it's like you know something that's infecting the uh, bajoran wormhole i thought that was all pretty cool and very inventive way of trying to sneak through and back um, it created a lot of action, and I, I enjoyed it. It was good. There's kind of a lot of intrigue leading up to it, 
too, just because I, I didn't I didn't actually see this coming. I saw them, you know, as they were building this or trying to build this wormhole, this artificial wormhole, and you know, saying that it, like it could only go like five point four light years or something like that. But that was like at the farthest out, but it was most stable in like the three light year range or something. And you know, like especially after Deep Space Nine was destroyed, my my only thought was, well how how much is you know three light years really going to save them time wise you know if they're going to have to get this close just to set it up and so when they actually connected it to the Bajoran wormhole i mean my mind was kind of blown with that cuz i was like oh this is genius like you said they don't they don't have to go through the Bajoran system they can just go straight to the gamma quadrant from a different starting point and um yeah i mean yeah it just it just created a lot of like suspense and you know especially as as the book went on and they were you know battling you know essentially more or less inside the wormhole um you know thinking crap this is going to be uh uh, this could potentially be really bad especially you know odo had said at one point that the dominion had no interest in in aligning with the typhon pact you know they they wanted to close their borders completely anyway but you just never know you know especially if if they're going to take these phase cloak ships into the the gamma quadrant what whatever like they could I mean, they could destroy the Dominion from the inside and then have all this technology that that the Dominion had. Uh, so, I mean, it just it created a lot of, uh, you know, suspense and, and possibilities there even of like, oh, gosh, where are they going to take this story? And um, so, yeah, and, and just the way that, it, that, that the wormhole was described, as you said, like the red squirrels. And then um, I remember somebody – whoever it was that was looking like Kira, I think maybe it was, was looking at, you know, the wall of the celestial temple as it was like, you know, in, infected and, you know, just this, this big bruise or this mar on the side of it. And I, I mean, it was very descriptive. And I mean, I, I really felt like, I mean, I could picture it. I was right there inside the wormhole with everybody. Yeah. And like the Benny Russell flashbacks, you know, it's basically, you know, that artificial wormhole is affecting the Hudson River. I mean, same thing, right? Now I never look at the Hudson River the same. I'm going to think it's the Bajoran <laughs> wormhole. But I, I also like about this book compared to other Typhon Pack books is seeing the Typhon Pack actually doing something together and working towards something. It wasn't just one race of the Typhon Pack doing this. You know, the Breen were working, the Zinkethi were working on it, the Rami, like there was multiple that were involved in this whole plan. Uh, so I, I, I really appreciated that. And it really connected all of the previous stories yeah. that that went on, like these kind of standalone stories. It was really all actually very connected, which was was really cool to see in this. Yeah, I think that's one of the strengths too of this book in general is that you know, uh, Bruce, when we talked about Plagues of Night, it just felt a little bit disjointed again, where we're just trying to connect all these different things. We're trying to have all these different time periods and these storylines connect. And this book felt much more enjoyable in the sense that we're basically, we do shift some time, but it's not quite as much. And this story is, feels much more linear in that sense, um, which I think it was to its benefit. And, you know, I mean, we ended the first book in this series, um, plagues of night with the destruction of space nine this one ends though with this false wormhole and the closing of the bajoran wormhole for who knows how long like i mean we two big huge things happening uh in these novels and that i mean that's another big 
plot point and a, another big thing to kind of take away from the Star Trek universe at this point. Yeah, and as as they've gone on too, it's it's interesting as as the Typhon Pact has been trying to make the slipstream drive, and then you know Bashir and Serena go and they destroy the Breen facility, and all the plans get destroyed too. And then I think the one guy who has the plans kind of in his brain ends up dying at some point, and you know all these things keep happening. And and this one ends very similar to that too with this with the Zenkethi uh, wormhole generator facility, whatever, being destroyed and um. You know, so it, it kind of almost closes the door on any of that story. You know, like if they had left that facility there, then I mean, I'd be sitting there wondering at the end of this book, okay, well, when are they going to get another wormhole back up? You know, mm-hmm. so the Bajoran wormhole's closed, but are they going to somehow, you know, um, advance this technology even further to be able to make a, a longer wormhole and go anywhere they want? I was very pleased when the Zenkethi facility was destroyed because i didn't remember if it was or not and when the wormhole was going down i was like oh gosh i hope that we don't go back to this again i I don't recall happening and then when it got destroyed i'm like okay i'm very pleased with this i'm very happy that it's gone good good rhythms you know i'm we won yeah for their own (laughs) ship to do it too yes in their own (laughs) ship exactly What did what did both of you think of this dramatic entrance that we get uh, where we have Camamore being smuggled to Earth to have and to kind of plead her case with President Bako as well as find a way to actually get more information about what's going on? Um, with and, and to try and figure out what the next part of this plan is so that we can keep more people from dying. I I loved the lead up to that because yeah, it it was a very dramatic entrance. You know, the ship just shows up in Federation space or actually in orbit of Earth. And um I was I was starting to think before Camamore showed up or before Paco went into our office and and Camamore was there, I thought it was going to be Sela for some reason. I thought this was going to be some some tragic thing that happens. But um I, I was pleased by that to show that um you know, Camamore isn't your typical Romulan, I guess. She she wants peace and she, you know, had had, I think in the previous book, tried to send a message to President Paco and it was a little kind of clunky message it seemed like, and you know, Paco kind of just ignored it and didn't want to reach out to to Camamore. And I mean, this really showed that she as the Romulan leader wants to um wants to kind of, I guess, end all of the kind of bickering and, you know, subterfuge and whatever, you know, between the Romulans and the Federation and start a new relationship and seems like even though she's kind of, um, you know, a different type of praetor, she is, uh, you know, one that wants to see change and maybe is seeing into the future that, you know, the Romulan Empire is going to be a lot different if we don't change, you know, it's some, something bad might happen. Um, and so seeing seeing her come and basically, um, I mean, it, she was practically on her knees with with Baco, just kind of, you know, begging her, like, let's let's make this work. And, and I, I really liked that. What I like about the scene with these two together is that I love Baco. She's one of my favorite characters in the novels. And this is one time that I'm not rooting for her. I'm rooting for the Romulan. I'm rooting for Camamore because 
Camomore wants peace and Baco, of course, can't trust her. I understand that, you know, but I want her to eventually realize that she can trust her and that, you know, that Camomore wants to work with her and establish peace. And Camomore wants to get to the bottom of things and she'll, you know, test her own people. And I, I kept wanting Baco to, you know, get it that, you know, start to realize that Camomore Camomore has the best intentions, you know, that we're working in the same direction. So I enjoyed having that flip happen for me that I'm rooting for the Romulan and I'm just hoping that Baco goes along with it. Yeah, no, I agree with you both. I mean, I honestly can't add anything to what y'all said because I I thought this storyline was fascinating. Like you said, Casey, I think the, the coolest thing here is to see the Romulan people and especially a Romulan leader take a different track, you know, and try to chart a new course for themselves. You know, they're not, not Romulans, but they're also looking to, and I think the thing about it is you finally got a leader to say, well, let's look at the history of the Federation and are they really a threat? You know, she's like, yeah, they they could be seen as being somewhat imperialistic. And I guess on the outside, that might be the case, even though you don't have to join them. They're not forcing anybody to join them. So I don't know what that that doesn't really make them imperialistic. But I, I thought that that was just really nice. And, and again, I thought it was a great place where there's a, a good message in the sense that like, yeah, we should be learning from history. Let's look at the history of what people do and see if we can find some way to move in a new direction. Can we trust these people? Can we not trust these people? And I thought that was really great. And I think it was real in real contrast to some of the other Romulans that we see and other members of the Typhon Pact where, I mean, like, we see Sela here as or members of, the, of True Way on Cardassia being so sold out to the fact that they are inherently superior to other races. And, you know, I, I, just, I find that fascinating. And Camomore doesn't believe that, right? She doesn't believe she's inherently superior just because she's Romulan. So there's this, there's this discussion of, you know... Um, the ideas that can lead to subjugation and racism. Um, and I liked that here. Um, but I also liked that it's finally being combated by a Romulan. Um, that there's the, and the top Romulan now, you know, and that this isn't going to be an easy road for her to be on or to get other Romulans to be on board with. But it's worth taking this track because it's going to be better for her people. It's going to be better for our people. Yeah. And and she's the first Romulan that we really know of that doesn't think like a Romulan. I mean, and even the mm-hmm. Romulans have a problem with that, a lot of them, that she doesn't feel like a true Romulan because that's not how Romulans... Romulans are always suspicious, but she's not, you know? And so she's thinking like we do, and that's why we like her so much, but she's not really... She's a true Romulan, but in some ways she's not. Yeah, because, I mean, she she's... I mean, she's suspicious, but she's cautiously optimistic almost, you know, about the Federation. I mean, everyone like Sila, Tomalak, everyone's coming to her saying, 
they've got the slipstream. They're going to equip all their ships with it, and they're going to come attack us. And she's got kind of the wherewithal to kind of stop and go, but but they haven't. Like, if they could, why haven't they? And, right. you know, she's even looking further into history going, they could have attacked us a lot, and they never did. Or, you know, like, and, and you get these these Romulans who are, and even to some extent, yeah, the Cardassians in the true way, but, like, they're they're stuck in these, like, very old mindsets, like, you know, with the Romulans, like, Probably thinking, oh, we we had a war with Earth, you know, a couple hundred years ago. They've still probably they're still probably bad or whatever, and uh, just can't get out of that mindset. And then yeah. that, a that, war we started, by the a way, war, yes, you know, <laughs> <That's> exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and like I mean, Camomor, I mean, she can be a true Romulan. Like the there was a great scene with her uh, and Tomalak in the uh, holding cell where. She essentially tricks him. She says, I'll promise you freedom if you kind of spill everything you know on Sila or, you know, on the on the plan that the Typhon Pact has. And then she's not going to release him like he's he's in Federation custody and he's going to face Federation penalties and uh, or uh, prosecution. And, you know, so she can play the that game. But at the same time, it's to the end of of peace, really. And and so, I mean. I feel like she's kind of that first Romulan leader that we see where you get that really that that sense that okay they might we might be able to get there someday with the Romulans and and have some ally allies um and then just kind of you know one thing that I just thought of on Sila too is that she like that the character characterization of her in these books has been great of showing the kind of um I don't know, dichotomy of her own personality that she hates her human self. She hates looking in the mirror. She hates the blonde hair. She hates, you know, a lot of these human features about her, but she thinks like she almost thinks like a, like an Uber Romulan, you know, that, uh, she, she's got to take it everything to the next level to prove her Romulanness. And, she's overcompensating. Um, exactly. <laughs> she's, she's overcompensating for her human, but, um, which I think makes her even, even more dangerous, especially mm-hmm. as the leader of the Tal Shiar in these books. Well, and I think that's something that, you know, the Andorian that gets found out who planted the bombs, you know, I love the conversation he has with Bashir because I think Bashir is rightly able to point out what the Federation did was not intentional. There is no intent there and, and intent matters. And I thought that was a really interesting conversation because I feel like, you know, we live in a world where intent doesn't matter to anyone anymore. Um, and it's it, it and I love Bashir being able to point out the oversight that the Federation makes here is one that it's it's not as though anybody in the Federation knew about. Like this this stuff was buried so deeply that we didn't know about it. The reason we buried it is because unlike the Tholians, this is something that we thought anybody should play with. And, you know, Bruce and I, we talked about the, the ramifications of that. But at the same time, it truly is something that is absolutely 100% dangerous. And, and you know, obviously that's what the Vanguard series was all about, was that type of danger that this, this um, information could cause. And so... I really liked that conversation and I thought like, you know, it showed the 
way in which we can become so stuck in our own mindset because it's the easiest way to think um, is just to blame somebody else or to put it on somebody else um, because we don't we don't really feel like we have any other recourse other than because then it, we'd have to look at ourselves too, right? So I I really thought that that was a, a strong part of that, and, and it tied in well with the the other types of kind of speciesism that we were seeing um, from you know the Romulans and uh, you know the Cardassians and and other members of the uh, Typhon Pact, which is in direct dichotomy to people like Camemore uh, or even Bako or you know Bashir or these people that you know we, we're seeing stand for what is right. So. Yeah, I enjoy that scene too. And you're right. It's what was the intention? You know, it, it wasn't our ours, you know, the Federation. It's not our intention to deceive the Andorians and to prevent them from getting any of this information that would have helped them. It was something that was buried. It was something that p- people nowadays didn't know about. And so when we say we, the Federation, that includes Andorians. And that's the one thing I, I'd like to see more of if they were going to do some more books around this. And the fact that the Andorians really should be mad at some of their own people who served on the whatever, the Council of the Federation, because it's not Federation versus Andorians. Andorians are the Federation. Why didn't the Andorians right, right, themselves yeah. know? And if they didn't know, why do they expect others in the Federation to know about it? Mm-hmm. And so yep. really there yep. should be a lot of Andorians who are going after the heads of other Andorians who served in the Council of Federation (laughs) for not exposing us or not knowing it. And why didn't you know it? Or did you know it and not tell us? Are you working Mm -hmm. against us? There's a whole complexity you could put in there. But the intention, like you're saying, like nowadays, it doesn't matter what the intent is. It's just what the perception is. It's like, you Mm -hmm. know, what what do I want to perceive that may be the reason this happened and not really what the intention mm-hmm. was. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, um, yeah, gosh, I, I do feel like that's something that, you know, just thematically we could probably have a whole podcast talking about. But uh, I I do want to move us to the fact that we're going to get a new station and that Nog and O'Brien are going to be creating a brand new Deep Space Nine. So... I mean, especially going back and thinking about rereading this or even just reading it for the first time, how did you guys feel about the idea of like, oh, yeah, we blew it up. Now we're going to get a new one. Kind of like, oh, it's a new Enterprise. There's plenty of letters left in the alphabet. Yeah, this being, I mean, my first time reading it, you know, we talked before the show. I'm I don't mind hearing spoilers and everything. So I, I totally knew that there was a new station coming anyway, but. It happens very fast. And I mean, they address it in the book, too, um, about how quickly this got passed and how some people are even surprised by it. I I was really happy to see O'Brien when he showed up. And um, he is the most important person in Starfleet, um, as we know from Lower Decks. And so for him to, to design the new station just seems totally appropriate. And I mean, um, he spent you know, seven years as the chief engineer of the uh, previous Deep Space Nine, which they they make um, 
they they mentioned quite a few times that that wasn't even meant to be uh you know a spaceport it was meant to be an ore processing facility and so you know imagine what o'brien you know if he was able to turn that into a spaceport imagine what he could do with one that's actually built with federation technology and um you know state of the art technology and um i thought that was just super cool and then to have nog come back um I thought it was weird when he, he was, I think he was in indistinguishable from magic on the challenger, which I, I don't know. I, that one, he always felt out of place in that story to me. So having him come back here again, it just kind of like, out of place, but that's a whole well, other podcast. Yeah, so that's true. <laughs> yes. Um, the authors were told but, you know, to ignore that novel going forward. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I do like though, how, how David R. George was able to, to bring in at least the, the mention that he was in, uh, you know, and even like whatever retconning that was done with Jordy and how he was not captain of engineering anymore, but they kind of just undid that whole ser- that whole story, which was fine. But yeah, having Nog come back and then especially having him working straight directly with O'Brien on, on doing this. And obviously there's going to be other, you know, engineers involved with this. It's not like, like these two guys are going to like design the whole thing themselves, but having them so prominent in it is great. And then, you know, yeah, hopefully seeing O'Brien as the chief engineer of this new station would be great. Or Nog. Yes. Well, I, okay. To be honest, when the series deep space nine premiered, I didn't like the fact that the space station was a Cardassian space station. I wanted to see a Federation space station. And yes, where the Federation and the Bajorans are working as a Federation Bajoran space station. But I know that it's a Cardassian built station that also used Bajorans for the most part as slaves to build it. But I mean, I grew to love the station, of course. But now that it's destroyed, I like the idea of building a Federation station because that's what I wanted all along. So I'm, I was always excited to get this new station. I will say, though, I love seeing O'Brien and Nog back, but I think I would have liked it if it was positioned more as a Bajoran-designed and built space station because the Bajorans were enslaved to build a Cardassian station, and now it's their turn to build their own space station, and maybe with the help of O'Brien and Nog. I would like to see them take the lead because it's them claiming their space back. Yeah, like some, like a little bit of redemption, really, for the Bajoran people in in that respect. And having, you know, for seven years, the Deep Space Nine, this Cardassian designed station, was the kind of first thing that uh, any new folks in the area would see when they come into the Bajoran system. But yeah, I, I like that idea. I think that would be really cool to see, and, and actually kind of cool to see like what those kind of design elements would look like. Uh, you know, a lot of wind sails you know uh solar sails so yeah um i i I mean i didn't have a problem with it it made sense and obviously this section of space is going to be you know um, really important with everything that's been going on so the fact that they would immediately look to build a new station i think makes a lot of sense and so i mean and and the idea of like like you said bruce of building a a space station that is actually a federation station and really kind of give us a design that harkens back to the original, but at the same time is going to be new and shiny and everything. It was really cool. Only thing I wish is that we never got, we only got vaguely from, um, 
some rough drawings that they had done and things like that of what the internal look of the space station was. I mean, I just feel like they really missed an opportunity to really make this a big deal and maybe create a whole website devoted to the new Deep Space Nine. I always wanted that. (laughs) Yeah. So all of that would have been really well, cool. Well, because we so got we that with Vanguard, down. right? Did we get a fold-out of the Vanguard station in one yes. of the novels? And Titan, yep. we got one of those? Yeah. Yep. And and here, though, too, you really needed a layout of what the station looked like and what it looked like internally because there's so much to this new station when they talk about it. And you just kind of... There are many times when in, in upcoming books when I would feel lost a little bit as to where you were in the new station, because the old station, I knew exactly what everything looked like. Um, This, I had no idea, and you had to describe it to me. And if you didn't do a great job of describing it to me, I was going to be... I I wasn't going to be where you wanted me to be. You know, I'd be more thinking about, oh, where is that? And, you know, anyway, so... um, Well, it's kind of like, you know, in the the beginning of this book, when when people are stuck in... pieces of the docking ring you know like cassidy and uh, yeah and, and kira were found in that like i know exactly like i can see like a piece of the docking yep. ring flying yep. through space and see what the the bulkheads would look like on either end mm-hmm. that's kind of saving their life but yeah yeah, yeah. 100%. what's funny to me though is reading this book and some of the previous books when i sometimes i have to remind myself it's the old deep space nine because i've gotten so used to thinking of the new one i kept on going oh wait no wait we're on the the original one i keep having to remind myself of that Mm-hmm. But you know, in the no new station, you can go hang gliding. You know, you can like there's all this is true. You got enough it's room so for big, that. Yeah. It's a huge part. Yeah. With um, one storyline we get here, we kind of continue with this whole idea: is she evil with Serena, and if Bashir can really trust her? And I'm I'm very interested to hear what both of you think about that because, um, I will be honest that rereading this. The story is just grating on me and it keeps getting worse every book because I'm tired of the same questions. And I'm honestly kind of tired of characters like Bashir having nothing but sorrow. Like, if you want to talk about somebody who's had nothing but sorrow, it's Bashir. Can we just let the guy be? It's kind of like Worf in the books. Like, he could never be happy. We always have to kill his love interest. Can we just let these characters find some semblance of of normalcy in their lives and like I, so that's where i am i'm interested to hear where yeah, you guys are matt you miss that's that's where the book should have really went at the end was the prophets tell cisco i'm sorry we meant bashir with the sorrow not you you're, you're good <laughs> we're so sorry for yeah it's our bad our bad you know i mean time's wibbly wobbly we just got that one a little bit wrong <laughs> all you humans look alike so we got it all confused so <laughs> anyway but i um you know what i like the whole serena bashir storyline but i you know what matt i agree with you it plays a little too long through the books of the, is Serena somebody that can be trusted? Can he really believe that she loves him? Is she still with section 31 or not? That question does go on for quite a while through many of the books. So it does get a bit tiring, but I do enjoy it. And I remember reading this book the first time and thinking, you know, just like Bashir, I think she's on the good side, but I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think she is, you know? So I was right there with them. And I've, I've never 
cared for the character of Serena too much anyways. And, and maybe this is why, and maybe I just haven't really put this together, you know, over like, cause I remember reading, um, was it, I think it was zero sum game. That was the Bashir Serena story that like, that one actually took me a while to get through. Cause I just didn't, I didn't really care for, I, I don't mind them being together. I, I wish she was just more like him in that we knew exactly where she stands. I mean, it almost seems like they tried to take some of Garrick's, uh, characteristics and put them on her like you know is she a spy is she not a spy is she good is she bad is, you know point. And, I, like yeah, I never thought of that yeah yeah and i mean so i think yeah i i would agree with you guys that yeah it's it i mean i haven't even read all the you know the books that come after this and you know i'm kind of getting to the point where i'd like to know where she stands so that i can start caring about her or not you know like um you know so i can pick a side and yeah it just the stuff with them, I, I like the Bashir stories. I, you know, I actually kind of like some of the the Section Thirty One stuff. But um, with Serena in particular, I don't know. It's just kind of meh, you know. Like I could take it or leave it. Yeah. Well, and I mean, another big thing is that we reintroduce Odo back into the series uh, in the sense that we find out basically he's been running the Dominion pretty much by himself, you know, since all the other founders and the Great Link is gone and. Now he's stranded in the Alpha Quadrant after this, you know, book. And so how did you feel uh, about bringing him back into the fold? I, I was, it, it made sense, you know, with, um, you know, when they went into the Gamma Quadrant and, um, you know, basically we're saying we, we need Odo when the, when the, when the uh, Jem'Hadar and the Vorta show up and they're saying, okay, we, we need Odo. Do you know Odo? And, you know, like the Vorta's probably like, yeah, it's kind of the only founder I talk to anymore. But, um, you know, so I think it, it was interesting. I, I'm actually really curious now where the founders have gone. Uh, you know, we saw Loss show up, which that was that was pretty interesting. And seeing that he's still kind of him, him his same same kind of personality, um, but he's actually still kind of he was at least working with Odo to some extent. But, you know, now that he's actually stuck in the Alpha Quadrant, I'm. I would be really curious to see, you know, okay, well then, what's going on in the Gamma Quadrant? The the Dominion has no leader right now. Like, is Loss going to take over? Are they going to become this big bad again? You know, I'd I'd really be curious to see where that's going to go. And you know that Odo's got to be thinking the same thing. Like, crap, I'm stuck here, and I was like tenuously holding, you know, the Dominion together and trying to get it on the right track, and that can't happen now. Now I wonder if he can maybe transform himself into some space flying thing that can go faster, you know, do his own slipstream and get to the Gamma Quadrant quickly. I don't know. Yeah, and the Typhon Pack would have been like, oh, we should have just captured Odo and used him as a ship all along. Darn. But <laughs> yeah, he's probably regretting he didn't pack more things because he didn't expect to be gone this long. But I, <laughs> I do like, enjoy how it made sense that Cisco visits with Odo in the Gamma Quadrant to figure out why the Typhon Pack is coming to the Dominion and what's going on there. And Odo being the one trying to solve problems and figure things out, the sleuth that he is, that he's, you know, let me figure, let me check what's going on. And that, you know, leads to bringing him that back to the Alpha Quadrant. And so when the wormhole hole goes away then yeah we've got odo there so we get to play with odo in future stories so it made sense that it worked that way um but it there wasn't a whole lot of odo in this book so i don't have a lot to say about him um yeah but it, it worked to get him back i think that worked yeah i think um you know it, it's kind of one of the things we talked about with like 
with Cisco and everything, it's like, well, you brought Odo back. It's you have this whole thing to organically have all these characters back together. And so, yeah, I mean, where his storyline goes will be very interesting. Um, as especially Casey, you continue on with the books because you haven't read them yet. So, well, this book ends on another cliffhanger because Ellis Vaughn finally gives up the ghost, but he helps Kira escape the wormhole and then she, along with the wormhole, disappears. And first, you know, how did you guys feel about the fact that we we finally wrap up what happened with Elias Vaughn? Um, and then the fact that, you know, Kira's gone by the end of this book. The, uh, the Vaughn storyline with him just in a coma for, what, a couple of years? Forever. <laughs> yeah, like... That seemed cruel to me, um, you know, and I know that his daughter was trying to come to terms with it herself. And I mean, that's not going to be an easy decision for anybody to like, um, you know, mm-hmm. aid in ending somebody's life, especially her father's, um, you know, and, and they went about it. They're, they're trying to go about it in the most humane way possible, just taking him off various machines and realizing that his body was still surviving. Um, and I I almost wish that. Um, the character of Eli, I think it was Eli Armstrong or something like that in the, in the, uh, um, I don't know, the prophet vision in, in the 1960s New York Harlem. I almost wish he would have shown up earlier so that we could maybe have gotten a little glimpse into the fact that he, he wasn't brain dead. He was just with the prophets. And I mean, right. and I, I did like in, in those scenes how Benny was the one that helped break not break, but you know, get Eli out of the police station because that was a little bit reminiscent of how Vaughn had brought Cisco back from mm-hmm. uh, the celestial temple. And um, so then for, but then for Eli to help or for Elias to help uh, Kira in that way too, was, I, I just thought it was kind of a poetic end. But then again, I guess too, I, I wonder is, is he dead? I mean that, you know, the, it says he, he opened his eyes closed them again and then died. So, I mean, I'm assuming he's like dead and not just, you know, with the prophets, but I feel like with the prophets, you just never know. <laughs> he's quite dead. Yeah. He's not dead He'll yet. He'll be done it in a minute. <laughs> I, you know, this is why I want to read the, the, the books that follow. Cause I can't remember all the answers to these things. I'm like, yeah, what does happen after this with Vaughn and, and Kira and the wormhole. So I'm intrigued. I'll probably just go to memory beta and, Read it and go, oh, yeah, that's right. That's what happened. But it's sad to me that I don't remember. That's what bothers me. Hmm. But, I I mean... I'm guessing he doesn't show up in CODA. (laughs) uh, uh, I don't know. Um, (laughs) I'm not saying. But it was... uh, I liked it. Uh, You know, Vaughn was always a favorite character of mine. Yeah, he was, you know, kept too long on the breather tube or whatever. But I... I I like that we're transitioning something to Kira, though. Even though we've taken away from Ben, I like that we're transitioning something important to Kira. And I love those scenes in 1960s Harlem and Benny Russell and Kay, the whole thing. You know, it's those are really good. I I, I really got into the storylines about, you know, Baco and, you know, and the Romulans and then this whole thing with the Harlem scenes and what's going on with Kira and Vaughn. So all that was working really well for me. Yeah. I mean, 
it's a big storyline that you know doesn't in in some ways get wrapped up with you know Kira till Revelations and Dust, uh, and so um, it's and and that starts off like a whole new you know thing with her and and the Bajorans and all that. So yeah, I mean, it, it's a big storyline that, that definitely you know I think. It is the place where we've transferred all of the spiritual stuff onto Kira for Bajor and taken away basically from Ben. And, you know, that's the choice that was made. It's not one I love. But I did like that, uh, like you said, Casey, that the situation with Elias really plays out very similarly to what we got with Cisco coming back in the first place. So it, it, it felt like a nice bookend to all of that. And I think it, it ended up, you know, going really well because of that. And so, um, I, I don't really have much to add cause I think you both, you know, said it so well with, with how that, that storyline plays out. So I guess to me, I'm interested in, as we've talked all through raise the dawn, uh, what you guys would rate this book? Yeah, like I said, when I started, or when I read uh, Rough Beasts of Empire, I was um, starting to question of whether I liked David R. George III much as an author, and then I was I was pleased when I read Plugs of Night and um, saw the story progressing as it did. And so once I got into Raise the Dawn, I was I was kind of excited. I kind of like as soon as I finished Plagues, Plagues of Night, I just you know, got right into this one and, and just kept reading. And especially once I got to the last, you know, 25 or 30% of the book, I, I just, I literally didn't put it down. I just like finished it, you know, finished it all. And so, you know, even with some of the, um, you know, the stuff we talked about, especially the beginning with Cisco and how, how quickly some of that came to a close, I, I still think this is a solid five, five star book. And I'd, I'd say five out of five destroyed Zenkethi wormhole generators for me. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, I think when I think back to Plagues of Night, I remember at the time feeling a bit disjointed that it just didn't flow as well as I thought a lot of other books that David has written. But this one really felt like a David R. George the Third book to me. I it just I was really into it. I was really feeling it. I could feel the what the characters are going through i could visualize everything it the pacing was just right it's like everything was just flowing the way i like a book to flow and even though i questioned the end of how we resolve things with cisco i did enjoy that it was resolved and the way it was resolved it just as casey said earlier just maybe a little too quick or i wanted more answers from the prophets as to why they, this whole sorrow thing was even mentioned to begin with. But everything from, you know, a lot of it also felt very much like Articles of the Federation when we have politics involved. So I enjoyed that. Uh, again, what little we had about Bashir and Serena, I enjoyed that and getting Odo back and dealing with the Typhon pack and seeing them all work together on this artificial wormhole, all this. So for the most part, I enjoyed it all. I gave it on Goodreads five out of five, but I'm going to give myself a little more room. It's not a perfect book for me yet, but it's close to it. So I'll say nine out of 10 last breaths from Vaughn. Nice. I, when I went back 
to look at the rating for this book when I finished it uh, on Goodreads. It had been a five, but, you know, I think in retrospect, especially with all the things that we talked about, this book is probably the best of what we've gotten so far in in this run from um, David R. George III, but... It's still probably just a four out of five Rubicons for me. Um, it because I think it's missing some some places that, and we've talked extensively about them in the last few podcasts, where I feel like the the storylines could have been accentuated, and and it could have easily been a five. Um, but you know, uh, it, this was definitely the best of them that we've gotten so far, and and it was it was nice to be back in this book and i think this book does leave you in a, a i guess a more hopeful place for a lot of the characters which is great which is very un star trek books in this time period because i do honestly feel like that there's a turning point that happens with the typhon pack series as a whole as we're about to close that out um in that things get much less happy. And, uh, you know, we're going to go into the fall series. We'll have the cold equation series. We'll have, you know, uh, a, a lot of other things. And, and so, yeah, things just get a lot less happy from here on out for a lot of characters. And so, yeah. Um, but this, this definitely left us in a good place. So, the one I, I forgot there's two things though I, I did want to mention that it just occurred to me it's a good thing and a bad thing the good thing is I'm glad Sela is gone because I'm not a big Sela fan to see her die makes me happy <laughs> then the bad thing is that I was disappointed at the very end that when the celestial temple is gone there didn't seem to be much sorrow from everybody else I expect you know what effect this had on the Bajorans and Cisco didn't seem to be all that set that the wormhole was gone. And everybody was just like, Oh, the wormhole's gone. They really miss Kira, but they didn't seem to miss the wormhole. I just thought that was a little strange. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, they, they like, uh, they're like, well, we'll we'll still build the station here, and if we ever need to move it over to Bayshore, like if it really seems like the the wormhole's never coming <laughs> right. back, then, then we can move it, but we'll just do it here. And, yeah, things are fine. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure it's fine. That was kind of weird. Yeah. So, yeah, that, I'm glad we've reread these. We've got one more book left. and I, But, you know, again, I want to go back and reread The Fall and, and all these other books that we've read before because now I'm back into this. Yeah, I'm actually really looking forward to getting I I know, uh, I think it's in The Fall where the, the extremely tragic thing happens to... Uh, a favorite character and um but yes i you know cold equation i'm i'm actually in the dti novels right now but cold equations like i mean hearing hearing everybody talk about everything that's coming up just makes me like eager to read even more and um you know so yeah so for the over the christmas break i will be reading and reading and reading and um it's awesome. looking forward to that so i'll have to report back when i uh when i know more well and um i've been trying to think of a a new series for us to cover because you know i very beginning of the year, we'll uh, dive into what we get there with Brinkmanship, and then I've been thinking about doing maybe something like the New Earth series or something like that. You know, where uh, like uh, books that I've always kind of I I 
mainly it's like I'm I'm interested to possibly read some books that I've not read before um, and, and to be able to discover those, which is always fun. So uh, but uh, if, you know, people want to catch up with you, Casey, and see what else you've got going on these days or uh, just maybe talk to you about what you're reading in Star Trek books, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm uh, all over social media. I'm not as active as I have been in the past, but I'm trying to get back in there more. But uh, I'm on uh, Facebook and the Babel Conference. I'm also on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Goodreads, uh, under the name Knitting Trekkie. And then I'm also on a podcast called Mickey's Marvels, where we talk about everything under the Disney umbrella. Oh, that's really great, Casey. Uh, <laughs> and nice. I love it. <laughs> and then you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the underline Rex. And then I'm on the Positively Trek podcast with Dan Gunther and on the Star Wars report, actually on the latest episode, if you're hearing this as this just came out, I'm on the latest episode of the Star Wars report. And of course, I'm always in the Babel conference, too. And, of course, you could find me all over the place on, on social media under the name MattRushing02, anywhere from Twitter to Vero to Instagram, all, all the places. Uh, you can also find me here on the network on our whole other side of the network that doesn't have anything to do with Star Trek, but we covered all the other fandoms we love and the 602 Club. Uh, got the bonus shows there as well with Snyder Cuts as well as Assembling Avengers. Uh, and then, of course, you could find me here doing... Warp 5 and the Orb. Warp 5 is about Star Trek Enterprise, and the Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And then over on the Nerd Party Network, you'll find me uh, doing two shows. One is a completed show called Owlpost. Did that with Drea Kaufman as we talk about uh, Harry Potter, and we went through every single chapter of that series. And then last but not least, doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars every week. But thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.